New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Americans in the 21st century have more stuff in storage bins and basements and attics and back rooms than we can ever use in a lifetime, or three. It's hard to let go of objects because they are full of stories, our stories, our family's stories, or if we've been haunting the flea market or antique malls, other people's stories. They speak to us, as Yeats once said, of what is past and passing and to come. They speak to us of the life we had and lives we never knew. We can, in fact, never be free of stuff until we have dealt with the stories it carries. In the end, it does indeed tell us something about who we are. These are the words of our guest today, Lisa Tracy. Lisa Tracy is a journalist and the former home and design editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. She now lives in Lexington, Virginia, where she teaches creative nonfiction and is the author of Objects of Our Affection. Join us for the next hour as we explore why we love our belongings and the stories they hold with our guest, Lisa Tracy. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Justine. Great to be here. It's good to have you. Um, I so much enjoy the book. It just reminded me of my own life where we've had to deal with the furnishings of past generations. So I would like to talk, to, to, to begin with, when you and your sister Jean, Jean is it? It's Jan, actually, but yes, you yes. got it right. <laughs> when uh, you moved your 83-year-old mother mm-hmm. out of her long-term home, so just say a little bit about that. Yes, she was 83 and had told us that she thought she shouldn't live alone. She was pretty sharp, but she also saw that she was starting to lose track of things. And friends had told us, because it's a small town, that um, she was driving erratically and uh, showing up at odd places at odd times. And one day a friend went in and found the stove was on and this sort of thing. And she still was, you know, my mom as we knew her, but um, she knew and we knew that um, she was beginning to to lose her control of, of her life as she had known it. And so we thought that 
a local retirement home might suffice. And uh, it was an old hotel that had been converted. And as it turned out, she did not like it at all. It was not what she wanted. We tried to find someone to live with her. And we found, you know, nobody, one woman who smoked and didn't have a car. I mean, it just, that's the way it was. It's a small town. And so that's not the case anymore. There's now a very nice retirement home and so forth. But at that time, which was in the early 1990s, no dice. So we did uh, make plans and we did move her to the Mayflower, which was this retirement home. And um, and we threw all the stuff in storage pretty rapidly because we didn't want it sitting there in the house. And it took a couple of times because they sent the advance man, as I call them in the book, to uh, do the light packing. And then when they had a big truck available, they came and got the rest. And But that took about a month. And we thought Mother was happily settled in this retirement home. But um, in retrospect, I realize, you know, duh, she still had a key to her house. It was only a couple of blocks away. And I imagine her subsequently sort of rolling her eyes and thinking we would come to our senses and she would move back to her house. So it was a kind of a messy um, undertaking. In retrospect, I see. At the time, I was just so focused on getting her to a safe place where people would be watching out for her, taking care of the furniture. We threw it in these storage bins, and we went back to our respective lives. We were both long since grown-ups. I was working at the Philadelphia Inquirer, living in New Jersey. My sister was in upstate New York. We had to do most of our work together by phone, and, um, and mother was in the retirement home, and we thought all was well. About six months later, she tripped over a threshold going into a friend's house, broke her hip, and things took one of the predictable courses that they take when that happens. She was hospitalized, she got pneumonia, and eventually, you know, three weeks later, she she died. That was maybe seven or eight years after... No, that was actually... that was I mean, that was six, six months after we moved her, but then... We went back to the furniture seven or eight years afterwards. Well, that's really interesting, too. I want you to tell the story of Roger because (laughs) Roger kind of shows up a couple of times, which was just kind of phenomenal. But first, he was the one who did the advanced packing. And you described that so well that you're sitting here in the midst of all these boxes of papers and documents and photos, and and Roger comes in and says... And he says, where do you want me to start? Which, as I say, seemed like an innocent question, and to him, of course, a perfectly logical question. (laughs) He's just showed up. Where do you want me to start? Um, And I so did not want to be interrupted while I was dealing with these papers, most of which I'd never seen before. My mother had very uh, carefully assembled a lot of stuff and labeled a lot of stuff, but I hadn't gone through it with her. I didn't know what all this stuff was. And what I was just trying to do is get it all into a box or boxes that I would recognize because I knew these were important family papers. And we, of course, had no idea she was going to pass off the planet so quickly. So I thought, we'll have time to do all of this at some point. Just got to get it nailed down. Don't interrupt me. So where do you want me to start? So I took him to the china closet. And he, um, you know, they have that great shrink wrap. And I knew he could do this better than we could. So he shrink wrapped for about an hour and came back and said, well, now what would you like me to do? (laughs) I was still in the middle of the papers. So I took him to the kitchen where the everyday china was and opened up the kitchen cabinets, and he shot me kind of a dirty look, but he got his shrink wrap machine and continued, and then he came back and said... And it was in a short, very short order. <laughs> yes, he comes back and says, I'm done with the china. At which point I took him to the basement, where in my grandmother's preserves closet, 
were 130 Canton China plates, luncheon plates. And I sort of gestured to them feebly, and he just gave me a very grim look, and he continued with the packing. (laughs) So, but where do you want me to start? In retrospect, it for him it was the beginning of an end, and to us it was the beginning of an unfolding of a beginning. Where do where do we start? Where does any of us start with the stories that are in our things that make it so hard for us to let go of them? You know, how do we ever come to terms with uh, the lives we've lived with our parents and the, the, the good things we did and the things that were less than felicitous? Um, and before that, our grandparents and a knowledge of where we came from, which I think for some reason, human beings like to know where they came from, you know? People who were adopted go looking for their their birth parents. And so this whole, this was the opening of a Pandora's box. Well, for sure. And I was struck by the fact that it took you, once once you got everything into storage bins or storage, you know, those self-storage lockers, whatever they are, and, um, it was no, another eight years or something mm-hmm. uh, before you even thought about it again. And I mean, maybe you thought about it, but we paid the bills. You, know, you paid, yeah, but we so didn't you, reckon with it. You didn't reckon with it. That's the way. And I'm, I'm thinking when uh, my mother died, my sister and I, it took us two years to even get to the furniture. We left the furniture in the house, Isn't and that we something? didn't. We didn't even do anything for two years. What What is that? What what have you discovered about that feeling of not being able to reckon with it? I think that's a fabulous question. I was going to ask you the same question, but I have thought a good deal about it. And I think that uh, it takes enormous emotional and mental energy to deal with our things. And why? Because we put ourselves, we put our lives, we put our, our stories, we, in a sense, put our family into the objects. We're, we're also, we are a storytelling animal. And I will say to people, you know, don't just think this doesn't apply to you because you don't have precious antiques. We had some good antiques. We had a lot of just stuff, like everybody. You know, if we go to the local linen shop and we go and buy a towel or two, we get home, and by the time we're home, we already have a story going on about this, why I bought it, why I needed it, which ones I'm going to get rid of, what it cost, you know, how inconvenient the clerk was, or whatever. Do you you know what I'm saying? It's Mm -hmm. like we constantly infuse stories into everything. We are a storytelling animal. There's another thing about this, though. I believe that Americans are uniquely, in a way, burdened with this tendency. Uh, In my research, I discovered that According to the Self-Storage Trade Association, Americans spend $20 billion a year on storage. Um, I've I've been told that in Europe, they tried to market the idea of storage units, and the Europeans just didn't get it. They're like, "What, what do we need these for? So I can't say that the Europeans have a whole lot less stuff than we do, but I suspect they might. In any case, what I think about Americans is we are a nomadic people. We're a tr- bunch of transients, you know, blow into town, you know, the whole Wild West thing. In one way or another, we have all been those those travelers, whether we actually got in a Conestoga wagon or not. That's an icon of our culture for, for good reason, because we all came from somewhere else, every one of us. And the few who didn't were the nomadic Native Americans who got pushed somewhere else. So nobody's where they started. And many times people have in the history of their family however incomplete it may be, they have the story of loss and survival. And so I think that we we treasure our material things more because it's a kind of a shell that we 
carry with us. And because we left so much behind once upon a time, I think that's in our psyche. Mm -hmm. And so by gum, if we can get more, we're going to hang on to it. So that's what I think about us as a nation. I think that's one of the reasons that it's hard to let go of things. I'm also thinking that when you were talking about, in, in your book, about how we, when we reestablish ourselves in a new place, there is something about bringing something with us mm -hmm. that that ha that's the continuity, maybe. Yes. I, you don't exactly put it that way, but what would you say about that? I think continuity is a great way to, to talk about it. Uh, one of the things I discovered, as you know, my family was a military family, so we are the nomads par excellence, and I've given this a lot of so thought. So you're the nomads nomad. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> the quintessential nomads. And I discovered, as a historical fact, it's well documented, that when um, army families came to these remote outposts in the West, for example, my, my great-grandparents were in Arizona right about the same time as Geronimo, and that means that my grandmom was a little girl, five years old, in Apache territory, they brought with them whatever the uh, the weight allowance would, would let them bring. So not just the winter overcoats and the summer clothes and the boots and things. They brought their china, their silver, their linens, some family pictures, whatever they could manage. Mostly they knew that the larger stuff they could buy from departing families who were in the same boat that they were. But yes, they brought that sort of gypsy camp that they unfolded. And I've talked to army people since then, and one woman said... She she was an army brat, as they call them, a child of the army, that whenever they got to a new post, that night when she and her brothers were sleeping, her mother would unpack the cereal, the breakfast dishes, the whatever, 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 you know, the pictures, whatever the, the little spread was that would say, okay, we're now in our new home. And that would, that would really make it start to solidify as, mm -hmm. oh, this is it because we've unpacked what we, we have carried with us. I'm here with Lisa Tracy. She is the author of Objects of Our Affection, Uncovering My Family's Past, One Chair, Pistol, and Pickle Fork at a Time. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Lisa Tracy, and she's the author of Objects of Our Affection. And Lisa, let me go back to your, your childhood a little bit, um, because you're now living back in the home that you lived in a lot when you were a kid, but it wasn't the only home. So, so talk about your grandmother's home and where you lived in Lexington. 
Okay, good. Yes, uh, Lexington, Virginia. My grandfather had been the superintendent of VMI during the World, World War II. And while the war was in progress, he and my grandmother decided this would be their, their retirement home. He was re- re- retirement age at the time. So they built a house. And then World War II ended. My dad had worked in the Pentagon, and we moved to Lexington and rented a house. And of course, it was right after World War II. There wasn't a lot of housing to be had. So we were living in this sort of rat-infested frame house that was from the early 1900s or something. It wasn't a great place to be. And uh, my grandparents were living in this much more civilized uh, new house that they'd built, which had a couple of fireplaces and was just not huge, but quite lovely. And in the back of which my grandfather planted uh, rose beds for my grandmothers to grace her table. It was the only home they had ever known. Both of them were army children, army brats as we call them. And both of them had lived all over the United States and really other parts of the world as well. They, uh, my grandfather was stationed in the Philippines five times. Um, my grandmother and her sister and my mother and the other children lived in Brooklyn while the men fought World War One. It was that kind of thing. They were all over the place. So to them, this was quite an achievement to actually have a house. And after my grandmother died when I was about six, we moved in with him. It was certainly a big enough house for all of us, and it was a much better house than the one we were living in. But also, my mother, it was her father, and um, she felt he shouldn't be by himself. He was quite heartbroken when his mm-hmm. wife died. It was He'd never thought that he would be the one who was left. And so and so we moved in with, with him and all of the uh, ancestral furniture, such as it was. It was a, a hodgepodge, some of it valuable, some of it, as we said earlier, just stuff. And, uh, and that was where I grew up from the time I was seven until I was 17 and went to college. So what did you remember about the furniture in that house and the furnishings? What, well, what most struck you? When I started to write this book, um, I, I began really being carried back by memory, you know, the way memory is such a powerful tool in our human toolbox. And I would suddenly be in in the living room with the summer furniture, which would be, yes, some of the same furniture from the winter, but with slip covers on it. And the Chippendale sofa had a slip cover of Dorothy Draper fabric that was green and rose and white. And um, and I know it's Dorothy Draper because many years later, I happened to be flipping through the New York Times and I saw an article on Dorothy Draper and there was our our sofa fabric. Um, the red chair is an icon for me because it was the chair my grandfather always sat in. He was a general. He was a very distinguished man. He was uh, the first man in the U.S. Army to hold all three of the top honors, the Distinguished Ser- Service Cross, Distinguished Service Medal, and the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so... The chair was very upright, like him, and it had a narrow waist and broad shoulders in my mind. I mean, the way the top curves, it seemed like the perfect place for him. And in fact, after long after everyone was gone and my sister and I had taken a few things, I took the red chair back to New Jersey. And for quite a long time, I would notice no one ever sat in it. <laughs> so I thought, hmm, maybe he's still there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's still sitting in it. <laughs> But the way um, the way it went with my memory, I would find myself, as I said, sort of thinking about the things in stereo, thinking of the reality. They're in the storage bins and we're going to have an auction. And then this other strain of the melody would come in that would be that straw rug, uh, round woven Filipino straw rug on the floor of the wooden floor of the living room and me sitting on it as a child because it was cooler down there. And uh, it's very... Uh, amazing how our memories evoke these things. 
So the Chippendale sofa and the red chair are two of the things that we did not sell. And my sister still has the, the Victorian love seat. So the, the, the living room could be, and the Egbert rocker, which is a padded rocker from the Victorian era. So the living room could be kind of reassembled, almost as my grandparents had it. And yet we did let go of most of the stuff mm-hmm. when it came time for the auction. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, seeing the movie uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. And what I appreciated so much about that movie, and this is about memory, uh, was they got the light correct. The light of the of the South mm-hmm. with the overhanging uh, uh Trees with Spanish moss, live oak, and yeah, and 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 somehow the filtered light because it's mm-hmm. hot. It's before air conditioning, right? It's a little dusty, and, and, yeah. And 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 the the light comes in in a certain kind of filtered way, and that's so that, interesting because um, my every every day after lunch, this was before air conditioning um, in the in the South in the mountains of Virginia. It was not so impossible. My grandfather would get up very leisurely from the lunch table, and he would go outside and shut the shutter. And until twilight, the shutters would be closed. And so the house had that kind of light and darkness that you're talking about, which is very, which bespeaks a cool southern environment. It's it's very interesting that you say that. Right. They're, they're, they're passive uh, way mm-hmm. of, of keeping, keeping the heat down, which also then reminds me of how... How was it for you to to start to let go of some of these this furniture that that had was imbued with stories? That's really in a large part how this book began because I was lying in a bed that belonged to my grandparents that I had taken with me throughout my adulthood, a double bed, a heavy wooden one, one morning and looking out the window through the dappled leaves and thinking, what are we going to do with all this stuff, which was a question I'd already asked my sister. And I think we both knew that an auction was the only answer. And at that moment, it was almost as if my grandmother came just for a fleeting moment. I almost felt her presence in the room, and her presence said, write about it. And so I sat up in bed, and I grabbed a spiral-bound notebook that was in my bedside table and a pen, and I started to write, and I wrote a chapter of the book about the Canton plates, which represent, for me, my grandmother. And even though we we did sell the Canton, because, and I know we're going to talk about auctions some more and about what it's like to go through an auction, but we tried to put valuable things in the auction so that people would come. And we also tried to be reasonable with ourselves and let go of things that we couldn't be the good stewards of. We didn't need all this china. We didn't need all of this really valuable wooden furniture that was going to peel and flake and break and do all of the things and have to have its joints repaired and be reupholstered. We have plenty to take care of. So... The plates were my grandmother, and the the chapter I wrote is called the Canton Plates. I, I I love the Canton Plates. I loved what you wrote about why so many luncheon plates. So you might might say a <laughs> hundred and thirty something odd. Why, indeed, you want to know? Yes, because um, I realized that these were officers and their wives who were living on a bit of a shoestring, but they were expected to entertain as if they were royalty because they were the military officers and it was only proper. So at least once a year, wherever you were stationed, you'd have to be inviting all of the important people, all of the other officers and local dignitaries and all this sort of stuff. It could easily end up being 100 people. 
you wouldn't want to invite them for dinner because dinner would be a more expensive meal. Um, just the food would be more expensive and not to mention the liquor because everybody, of course, drank this artillery punch and that sort of thing. And and you also, if you had them for lunch, you could have a light luncheon and just a little, you know, artillery punch. And then they would go away and they would not sit and drink up all your liquor and eat up all your food <laughs> and perhaps break your china and put their feet up on the sofa and God knows what all. Because, you know, this was the army after all. And so they would go off to the officers club or someplace to finish their day and you could clean up the wreckage and get on with your day. So the the women in your ancestry were very... Uh, Practical minded. Practical, practical. They were, they were, they, they got it down. You know, an, another thing that you did as you were going through some of the papers, you, I was just very impressed that you called the um, Museum Society at uh, Fort Verde mm-hmm. in Arizona. And, you know, you won't always get this kind of response, but you said it was maybe a slow day and the woman there was very much. Um, chatty with you and and is glad to look up some things, and you discovered some things. That was a great day, and I guess partly because I'm a journalist, I don't hesitate to make a cold call. You sort of go, oh, well, why not? And so you do. Uh, and But the people at Fort Verde are also just a wonderful group of people. And I just want to say parenthetically that that was a uh, one of the state parks that was threatened with closure because of the economy. Arizona was closing 22 or something parks. Mm-hmm. And the town of Fort Verde got together and raised the money to keep it open for a year and then see what happens. It's a wonderful place. They do all sorts of good stuff, reenactments and things. But uh, what I discovered was that I hadn't really known until I saw the papers that my grandmother's family had lived there when she was this little, very little girl. My great-grandfather, Harry Harry Clay Egbert, was one of the commanding officers of this post. And as such, he was entitled to, as the curator told me, the best house. That's what the commander got. But there were housing allowances, and this was a pretty big house, and they only had a few children. And so um, they stuck a, a single lieutenant or something in there with this family, and he was sort of like their boarder, if you will, and had one room. And this kind of appeared in the papers somewhere, didn't it? How, yes. How, how, did it, how did you find out about it? The curator, were on the phone together, and she says, well, let me see what I can find. And she takes the name I've given her, and she starts to rummage, and then she goes, oh, yes. Oh, this is very interesting. It looks like a bit of a squabble. And then she begins to read to me over the phone how Lieutenant West uh, was getting married, and he wanted more room, and my great-grandfather didn't at all want to give up any of his house. And they so they went back and forth. And this this argument actually traveled to Washington and back. It had to be adjudicated by somebody. And eventually, you know, they, they said that indeed he would have to go off and find other quarters or something. But she, it was wonderful because I'm on one end of the phone and I've never seen Fort Verde. And she is, they've got great archives and she's rummaging through these archives. And the whole argument between Harry Egbert and Lieutenant West is is documented because it's the army. And they practically document you if you brush your teeth. You know, it's marvelous. It's mar. It really brings alive the way they were living and mm-hmm. how they would have to live together. And these these two married couples with children. Right. One is a lieutenant. One is a commander. I mean, what kind of tension that must have been? And they, they have just- one common room. 
that's the dining room and everything else room. And, they, you know, I imagine the officers are trying to get some paperwork done. The wives don't know each other at all, and they're really kind of nervous. The one family has the children. The other family's newly married, so they don't. But nevertheless, so so Mrs. Egbert is even more nervous because she doesn't want her children to be irritating this couple. And, you know, oh my, and the women yeah. are trying to make polite conversation about, you know, the laundresses and the, the enlisted men or whatever. Later, you were able to visit, and you yes. actually looked in on... On, on a room that probably looked very much like it did when your grandmother was was a little, was a little girl, little there. girl there. Yes, they've uh, they've restored several of the houses there, and one was the commanding officer's house. And you you know the commanding officer and his wife have a bedroom downstairs, and then there's a parlor across the hall, which was had become Lieutenant West's room instead of being the parlor. Then there's the big common room, the kitchen's behind. And upstairs, I'm standing looking through this glass shield that they, they don't want your humidity in the room. And I'm realizing, and this could be my grandmother's room, a little single bed, and the window that looks out across the arroyo, and the guide has just told us that the Indians are just on the other side of the arroyo. And so I'm wondering, you know, my scalp is kind of wow. tingling. And I'm wondering yeah. what that felt like for a little five-year-old exactly. girl. Exactly. I'm here with Lisa Tracy, and she's the author of Object of Our Affection. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Lisa Tracy. She is the author of Objects of Our Affection. And if you want to to know more about her work and and more information, you can go to her website which is objectsofouraffection.com. That'll be easy to remember. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Lisa, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your living in this small southern community where um, really storytelling is is just imbued in it, and it's, it's a form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And um, so talk a little bit about why storytelling is important and why, especially in a small southern town, it was important. Well... Our town was actually very isolated when I was a child, and I think that that's part of it. I think, you know, we've talked about how this we are a storytelling species, we human beings, and so it's a natural form of entertainment for us. It's something that goes back thousands and thousands of years. The the uh, image we have of the shaman standing by the fire and the tribe all gathered around the fire. So it's it's intrinsic to some extent. This was also literally, physically, a pretty isolated place. It was a college town, but nevertheless, it was from in the in, from the standpoint of highways. It, there were no interstates in those days. But there's another reason, I think, two other reasons. Another is that it was on the edge of Appalachia, and there's a great storytelling tradition, Jack Tales and all the rest of it, there's just always been, that came over with the British um, peoples who inhabited those mountains. And finally, I think, because... Uh, of the history of the South, that that there was this um, this need to explain and 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 to go back and to try to redress the pain and the anguish that had 
been brought with the Civil War. Um, as we were discussing a moment ago, I, I do say at one point um, that um, I say that victory needs little explanation and, and the people who have been vanquished perhaps need to explain more. This was also a town where Generals Jackson and Lee were both buried, so there was a great deal of pride. And there was a great deal of pride in the side of the war that lost the war in the, in the South. There was a feeling that, that they were really right about a lot of things. My family was a Northern family. And so it was interesting growing up there because as children, we simply absorbed the, the mores of the town. We abs- absorbed the heroism and the, uh, the scarcity and how the women had managed to eke things out in, when there was nothing left and how the men had gone off and died and how in, in, in the end this cause was lost. Meanwhile, my mother who is very much a child of the North, is just kind of keeping her mouth shut because this is a small town and she doesn't want to offend anybody. But when we got to seventh grade and we got to the Virginia history book, she sort of flipped through the book and then without really even looking at it, tossed it disdainfully on my pile of school books and said, well, I won't help you study from this book. It's a pack of lies. And it was then that I began to listen a little differently. And I heard two stories then. But it took me probably until adulthood to sort of really understand this was a small town where there was a military college, Virginia Military Institute. It's a very good one. It's called the West Point of the South. And so there was a real understanding of the same things that the people at West Point were studying. And the the motto of West Point is honor, duty, country. And as I as I unfolded my mind through this book, I meditated on that and I thought about how it doesn't say country first. It's duty first, actually. Duty, honor, country. And that was something that this little town, this little military town in the South really understood. And those were some of the stories that they told, stories of of pride and honor. And that's not something you can really take away from somebody, even if they were wrong. You know, they still did their best. They did what they thought was honorable. Right. Yeah, I, I, my my roots are also in the South, as yours. And for myself, uh, I kind of call myself a dual citizen mm-hmm. because I have roots also in the North. And so, but I, what I notice in my growing up, that being in the North, north of in Northern Illinois, out of Chicago, um, nobody ever even thought, none of my friends even talked about or thought about the Civil War mm-hmm. at all. I mean, it just was not a subject of conversation. Whereas uh, when I would be the summertime with my friends in Alabama, it was very much a subject of conversation. Mm-hmm. It was very much, it was alive and, mm-hmm. and very um, visceral. And you say, you really point out in your book that your friends in Lexington, that their, what grandparents knew, really grew up, they were the one generation out of those who fought. Exactly. In other words, we actually knew people who had known people who had fought in that war because we knew our, you know, my friend's grandparents and their parents had lived through the Civil War. That's how close it was. This was in the middle of the 20th century. And um, so so it was very immediate. And what you said about, um, about it was Alabama where you mm-hmm. were, and this was very immediate. It, it strikes me that it's not a bad thing for history to be a living entity. It's not a bad thing for history to be exciting and to feel connected to history. In this case, though, 
I think it also bespeaks the fact that, to some extent, we still live in a really divided country. Um, and perhaps if we paid a little more attention to the stories and, and really thought about them, perhaps we could begin to heal some of the wounds, because there are still big divisions in this country. You know, someone uh, just wrote something in the Huffington Post, a friend of mine, Brenda Peterson, that we have actually interviewed here, and she was writing about Sarah Palin and about the whole Tea Party, mm-hmm. and she was really equating it to those who somehow felt vanquished That's in, right. and, and giving a whole other feeling about it, about how we really need to listen to one another deeply about yes. our, our, the wounds in this country that still are there. Yes, we really do. That's so powerful. And it's, it's as if the division between North and South over the Civil War, it's as if that's an analog, as if it's analogous to what's happening now. It's not the same divide exactly, but there is a strong division between the people who have sort of had the power and had the opportunity, and the myth that this is a land of opportunity for everybody, well, it's arguable, you know, we both know that. And so the the people who've actually had the opportunity there's a feeling on the side of the people who haven't had as much opportunity that they've sort of been disregarded, run rough, shot over. And those are your, I think those are your Tea Party people. They're like, well, what about us? Don't we count? We're Americans too. We have a story that's important to us and you're not listening to our story. I want to talk about storytelling in generations. Um, when we are young And these are when the stories are getting passed down. Our grandparents, and maybe we've even known uh, our great-grandparents, some Mm of us uh, who who have great-grandparents who lived a long time. And and we're not—somehow later, we're in our 40s or 50s or 60s, and we think to ourselves, I know I'm one— I wish I would have listened to the stories better. Yes, that's so true. And and in my travels, as I've talked with groups that where I've read in bookstores and in in uh, other uh, centers, I've said to people, many of them are older people, you must tell your stories. And I see their eyes start to roll back, and I say, I know you think you're going to tell me the young people don't want to hear it. Well, let me tell you, up until about the time they're 10, maybe a little younger now with video games, they do want to hear it. But you have to jump in really early, and then you have to wait. But the trouble is, just about the time that they're going to want to hear those stories is when we will no longer be on the planet. It never fails. I have There's so many questions I would ask my mother if I could still get to her. And it would have been simple for her to answer a lot of these questions. And so with people who are older than 40, if you will, um, and who are still on the planet, I've said, faute de mieux, if you can't do anything else, write it down. If you can't, if you, if you think you're not a writer, it doesn't matter. Do it anyway. Tell the stories. Tell them to whoever will listen. And if no one's listening, write them down. And at the very least, and some people have told me they actually do this, if you've got an object that's got a story, just scribble just the barest notes about what it was and tape it on the back or put it someplace where people can find it. Well, that brings us to the auction. How how was the auction, doing an auction of your family's furnishings, and how was that for you? In a way, it strikes me right at this minute that it was very military for both my sister and, and myself. And how, what I mean by that is when you're in the military, when someone says march, you just go, whether you feel like it or not. And we've sort of lived our lives that way. We, we set our goals, and then we just march for them. So we set the goal of the auction, not really knowing how it would be. And the auctioneers did kind of try to dissuade us from coming gently, but we went anyway. 
because we felt that it would be disloyal not to. We set it up because my mother had very wisely had us divide all of the stuff while she was still alive. She caught us both together one day and said, start picking, eeny, meeny, miny, mo," and the first person gets to pick first, and then you take turns. So we had lists of what belonged to whom. We both tried to contribute good things as well as the stuff we didn't care so much about. We agonized, but we were really fair, and we, we both were on the same page with that. Then we got to the auction itself, and... Um, Things that we didn't care about as much went for surprisingly much, a few of them, the China especially, all the China. Well, we did care about the Canton, but there was some mice and we didn't care about, and it went for lots of money. And the wood furniture, which was this really good, at one point my sister said, you couldn't even buy the wood in that furniture for the price that that person just paid for the whole beautifully assembled piece, you know. And, and that was hard. And I had actually brought business cards. I was at the paper at the time so that if anyone wanted to know any of the stories, I, they could reach me. And I went up to one or two people, and one woman did take the card, but most of them just wanted to pack the stuff and get out of there. It was a January afternoon, and they wanted to take their booty home. Were, were they dealers or were going to resell it, do some you of think? Them were, some of them were dealers, but the clay screen, which was this immense green clay screen from China with beautiful paintings on it, very fragile. A mother and her daughter were loading it into their car, and I somehow got wind that she was a medical doctor at the University of Virginia, and they were already talking about how good it would look in the living room, and they just didn't even look at me when I passed by them. So the history of it, it was just that it was going to go for their decor. They were already putting their story into it. We went to this auction, and it was amazing. And fortunately, we had so-and-so's truck, you know? And their story was already starting, and it was at that point I kind of got it. I was like, I see. These things now take on a new story. This is a new life for these things. There's something kind of sad about that, though. I, I, I feel kind of sad. Well, it was heartbreaking at the moment, and I was stunned and, and dismayed. And for... Weeks afterwards, I would wake up in the middle of the night, like around three in the morning, and two of the pieces of furniture would be talking to me, and they were saying, how could you do this to us? We were always together. And that was really hard, kind of like a nightmare. So you have a slight regret about a couple of things that you did let go? I do. But at the same time, I know that that chest that was talking to me was very heavy and rather fragile, and... We couldn't take proper care of it, you know? It wanted to go someplace where it would be the main piece of furniture, the showpiece. Right, right, exactly. I'm here with Lisa Tracy. She is the author of Objects of Our Affection and Uncovering My Family's Past, One Chair, Pistol, and Pickle Fork at a Time, um, and maybe we'll we'll get to the pickle fork. For sure, we'll get to the uh, salt shaker, I know. Um, but if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, objectsofouraffection.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Lisa Tracy, and we're talking about objects of our affection, and uh, that's the title of her book. Lisa, you moved back to your family home. You were living in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. and then, I don't know how many years ago, maybe... About five years ago. Five years ago, you packed up, and you actually moved back to your family home. I'd always wanted to go back to the mountains, which is which surround our, our town in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'd spent uh, most of my adult life in New Jersey, which is a great state, much to many people's uh, dismay what it is, and uh, working for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And at, at one point, it was I was old enough to take an early retirement, and they offered a buyout. So I thought, well, I'll just take the moment and go back. There were some families of ours still living in, in the town of Lexington, and I wanted to reconnect with them. And my sister and I own the house that my grandparents built we own it jointly so I, I spoke with hers and as her and said for now would it be all right if I went back I'd like to live there for a while and see what that's like and so I did go back and opened up the house and uh, for a time shared it with my nephew and great nephew and got the, the remaining furniture out of the storage bins and brought it back and for a while it all just sat in the living room because we had our own beds and things and we it all just sat in a in a heap kind of in the living room and it made me think of that scene from uh, Dr. Zhivago when they're they're on the run or something and everything's sort of all dislocated. And eventually we sort of got it all sorted out. And I have been living there ever since and have written um, two books and edited a third. So, you know, I'm working in a cottage industry in Lexington. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to be back in this Mm -hmm. beautiful little town in these beautiful mountains and in this house that I know so well. You know, it's perhaps not where I'll stay forever, but for right now, it's a good place to be. That just uh, something that you said reminded me of some part that you wrote about in the book, and it it was something I know we all have experienced. So we're going through some papers or we're, we're, we're boxing up things, and some object, some trinket or some photograph or some item just stops us, and we start to divert it, mm-hmm. it just diverts us into this whole other thing that mm-hmm. that uh, we just can't uh, help ourselves but just follow that path yes so you might say something about that about as you're going through papers and things well I wonder if this is a time to talk about the salt shaker for example oh please do let's talk <sighs> about the salt shaker uh I was unpacking, having gotten back into this house, and had sort of gotten the furniture more or less set to rights, the big pieces, and had discovered a whole bunch of linens that needed to go someplace else. And then one afternoon, I I walked into the kitchen, and I looked at this box that was sitting on the dryer, and it was simply labeled kitchen stuff. And I gave up the afternoon at that point, knowing that I would be wading through, you know, bad cookbooks from the 1950s with tips on jello and holiday entertaining and um, pieces of worn out plate silver and all kinds of stuff. And I was doing that and making piles for the secondhand store and piles to throw away and all of that. And a few things to keep. And at the bottom of the box, I found the salt shaker. And it's such a simple object. It wasn't an expensive salt shaker. It was one of those sort of cylindrical glass ones with the diamond in it. Everyone's had one. It's got an old aluminum cap on it. And uh, there was salt in it. And I knew that that was from my mother. That was the kitchen salt shaker. It sat on the stove. And that that salt, the last person who handled that salt was my mother, who by now had been 
dead for more than 10 years, and it really stopped me. And I started thinking about all of the quiet, polite dinner table conversations where we didn't say what we really had on our minds, and the times that we disagreed with each other and the times that I'd been short with her and how we had swept in thinking we knew best and had blown away the world she knew. Uh, and and that, that she mo- had moved taken her, house. Taken her to a retirement home, which she sort of said she should, but she didn't really want to. And we just didn't listen to her carefully. And we just thought we knew best and we put her in the retirement home and six months later she had she was dead. And there was no more to be said. And even though it was 10 years, as I stood with the salt shaker, I felt I really began grieving. You know, I really began to grieve. Isn't that interesting of this object, and suddenly it just reaches inside the heart Mm -hmm. somehow. And this was the Salt shaker that used to sit on top of the stove. Right. It wasn't a fancy one. It wasn't, it never made it to the dining room table. It was mm-hmm. a humble salt shaker, you know, just a very, an everyday object. And then later, when you were cleaning up the kitchen, mm-hmm. some people were helping you. you uh, yeah. We, we had uh, various members of the family in and out of the house at this point because we were all sort of in transition. And so the house was, it was quite a chore to just kind of keep on top of things. And uh, April and Kay were two women who came and, and helped me uh, just keep keep it clean. You know, they do the mopping. And I, this particular day, I said, would you please really nuke the kitchen? Just everything, counters, the stove, really make it. So I came in, and uh, one of them is washing the, the back window, and the other one's working on the stove. And I walk over, and I see that the salt shaker, which by now has sat on the windowsill for quite some time, with the salt still in it because I couldn't bring myself to empty it, is full of water and sitting in the sink. And I'm like, uh, w- uh you, you w- washed the salt shaker? And April says, well, yeah. And so that was, um, you know, I, I actually took the salt from the salt shaker and I, I took it outside around the house and sort of did a little prayer with my mother. And So uh, was there any salt left in it? Yes, was it, 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 was, it was full of salty water. So I just took, oh, I took the whole so thing and I just kept putting it on my hand and, and touching different parts of the house outside. I went around and sort of did a little mm, circle, a little sacred circle. Beautiful. Did that help you complete that then? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I felt yeah. as if I had really communed with my mother. Yes. And she was with me. Yes. So now you have a clean salt shaker and, and <laughs> new salt. And um, my mom is watching over the house. And your mom. That's, and she definitely is. Definitely. Um, I, I want to touch briefly on you were able to go back to uh, the place where your grandfather mm-hmm. uh, was stationed. Yes, my, and- my grandfather was uh, Charles Kilborn. He was a general by the time he got done, but he'd been stationed in the Philippines five times during his lifetime, and he had seen that the Philippines were someday going to be vulnerable to Japan. The army had already studied this, and he took it upon himself to fortify Corregidor, which is a small island that was very instrumental in keeping the Japanese from quickly conquering the Philippines. He built a system of tunnels, and he also 
uh, put guns in place. And this all had to be done sort of surreptitiously because of a treaty that we had with Japan that said you couldn't fortify Corregidor. So I went directly to Corregidor when I got on this tour of the Philippines. And there was a little sub-tour that took us there. It took us a couple hours to get there from Manila out to this island. And I told our guide that this was why I was going. And he sort of drew a blank, which was very disconcerting because to me, this story was very real. Anyway, we went through the Malinta Tunnel. And when we came out, he said, well, how did you feel? And, and this was a tunnel that... My grandfather uh, had overseen the building of it. The building of it. And, and this was a tunnel that was made famous because it was where General MacArthur mm-hmm. actually held up for, yes. for five or six months before he had to to abandon the Philippines. Yes. The tr- the American troops made this tr- incredible last-ditch defense, right. beca- and they were able to do that because, because of this immense system of tunnels that, that my grandfather had put in place in his prescience. But people didn't remember him when you were asking about him. No, because, of course, I realized later the whole thing had to be done completely in secret. He used prison labor and old mining equipment and his post allowance to build this incredible system right. of tunnels. So... Long story short, we went for lunch at the Hotel Corregidor. I'm in the gift shop looking for any little thing I could take home to the family. And it's mostly, you know, cups that say, I heart Corregidor and stuff like that. And it's just nothing. And I finally stopped at this carousel of buttons, you know, like you put on your lapel. And I hate those things. I don't ever wear them. But I was sort of desperate. So I spun the carousel. And there was this familiar face on one of the buttons in what looked like a West Point uniform with the high collar. And I thought, oh gosh, that must that must be MacArthur's sort of familiar face. I picked it off the stand and under it it says Lieutenant Charles E. Kilborn, first garrison commander. That was my grandfather. It was his VMI senior year picture and it was the only one of them on the carousel. And I felt at that moment that he had actually been waiting for me there. Oh. And I took it back and oh, showed no. the guide and he's like, wow, it's true. Oh, that must have been so moving, so moving. It was like I had connected with my family. You know, uh, Lisa, there was, um, before you moved back to Lexington, and you're in Philadelphia, and you write about this, and your Mary, your friend, is helping you um, there they're in there to pack up and what you should throw away or give away or whatever. And there's a dress that you can't decide on. And she, she, as you stand there immobilized uh, in the hallway, she said um, for you to keep it. And she said, because if you give it up, there's a loss of self. And you go on to write, and I, I hope that, that you'll, you'll read those two paragraphs mm-hmm. because they're so beautiful. Because if you give it up, said Mary... There's a loss of self. It's the conundrum of the 20th and 21st centuries, objects defining who we are. As life spins faster and faster, we cling to things like the flotsam from a shipwreck, hoping that daybreak will bring us to a familiar shoreline. Instead, it brings us to yet another venue in which we can or must recreate ourselves, with the option of bringing along selected pieces of the past for comfort and perhaps stability, one less thing to reinvent. On the other end of the process, there's the letting go, and that's the conundrum redoubled, as our packing, unpacking, and repacking has reminded us all too clearly. Once a thing's invested with whatever an individual or a family has to offer. Time and times, power and dreams, memories. Who can let it go? 
Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today. I've been speaking with Lisa Tracy. She's the author of Objects of Our Affection. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, objectsofouraffection.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3371. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.